welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today we'll be hearing from long-distance cyclist for a cause, Scott Parsons. I met Scott a few weeks ago at a lunch counter in a small town in western North Dakota. He was sitting there in black, white, and pink spandex with a smattering of corporate logos across his chest. He'd recently quit his job as Western Vice President of Sales with Georgia Pacific to ride his bicycle from San Francisco to Boston. He's helping to raise money to fund medical research for Rett's Syndrome, a rare and highly debilitating disease that affects 1 in 10,000 girls. Unfortunately, one of those girls is Michaela Smith, the daughter of one of Scott's good friends. Scott got into high gear, realizing that he could join his dream of riding across the country with the cause of finding a cure for Michaela. Scott says that many of us repeatedly choose the easy path of a good life rather than taking the risk necessary to have a great life lived without regret. Scott, I'm excited that you're free to join us on Living Hero. And it just seems so providential to me that I sat next to you in Big J's coffee shop in Bowman, North Dakota, both of us on our respective sojourns. That coffee shop was something, huh? Yeah, it was out of the 50s. The only thing that was missing were the beehive hairdos, right? You're exactly right. It's been uh, interesting on my trip that I've had a lot of experiences like that that are unique to those little towns, and that's been one of the highlights, really, is just to see all the variety and to see people who uh, live life differently than we do. Let's back up a little, since our listeners don't know you yet. I'd love to get you into talking about your cross-country bike trip, but I wonder if you could start us out by giving a little background on you and what you were doing before you embarked on this journey. Sure. Uh, my name is Scott Parsons. I am 35 years old. I recently started a cross-country bicycle trip to fulfill a dream of my own and to help raise money for a, a very important charity that's very close to my heart. Prior to that, I worked for a company called Georgia Pacific. I was the Western Region Vice President of Sales for their commercial division and uh, managed their operations in the Western United States and had a pretty nice career. I had some nice accomplishments. But I just decided that there were some things that I wanted to do that were a little more uh, people-oriented and that, uh, at least in my mind, would have a, a more positive impact to uh, people, not just to their bottom line, but to their lives. And so uh, one of the things I wanted to do initially was to ride my bike across the country, which is something I wanted to do since I was a child. And then I got a really great opportunity uh, due to a terrible situation that a friend of mine, uh, Robert and Annie Smith, find themselves in. Uh, Robert and Annie's daughter, Michaela, was recently diagnosed with a disease called Rett Syndrome. And uh, when I first found out about that, I thought it was sad, just like anybody would when you hear that something bad has happened to a family member. And then I learned that uh, Rett Syndrome uh, was recently reversed uh, in lab mice about a year ago. And the interesting thing is Rett only affects a very small percentage of the population, about 1 in 10,000 girls. And as a result of that, although they can reverse the disease in lab mice, Big uh, pharmaceutical companies and high-powered uh, scientific companies are not really putting any effort into going further with reversing the disease because there's essentially no profit in curing it because it's a very small group of people who have it. And something about that just struck me as unfair, so uh, I took the opportunity to uh, kind of combine forces with Robert and Annie and turn my bike trip into the launching pad for their charity, which is org which is purely to raise money for research for a cure for Rett syndrome. Fantastic. How is Rett treated now, by the way? Is it treatable at all? It, it isn't treatable at all. There's a number of things that they, they do for Rett girls. Like in Michaela's case, she spends 17 hours a week. She's two years old. She spends 17 hours a week 
in therapy. So she does all different kinds of uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, electrostimuli therapy. She has a very specialized diet. Uh, it's gluten-free. So there's a lot of things that are done sort of to her, but it's really just to try to minimize the effects of RET. You're not really treating it. And so uh, it, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, similar to autism in some ways, but it's more severe in others. And the main way that it differs is that uh, girls with RET syndrome have what's called motor planning disability. And so uh, when we get ready as, as humans to move our hands or to move our mouth or to swallow or chew, um, there's some triggers that go in your mind that uh, prepare your body to make those movements. And in that girl, that doesn't happen. And so all of the uh, occupational and physical and speech therapy is geared towards trying to teach them uh, what we all know intuitively, and that is that there has to be something that happens to trigger movement. And so that's really the battle. And uh, the fact is that it, it's not really uh, incredibly successful. Girls like Michaela, if they don't go to therapy for a week or, or in some cases even a couple of days, they'll regress um, further than they've uh, progressed in the whole span of being treated. So it's really a challenge from that standpoint, depending on how uh, affected you are by the disease. And there's a wide array of, uh, of affectations of the disease. There's not very much you can do about it other than to love your daughter and uh, try to make her comfortable. Wow, Scott, it sounds like her whole life is spent just mitigating this debilitating syndrome. It really is, and, and her mother, Annie, basically her full-time job is to try to uh, make Michaela as comfortable as possible, and Robert, her father, obviously there's a big financial burden that comes along with having a child with a disease like this, and so it's really placed an incredible strain on their family. And it's also, uh, I mean, in sort of an unusual way, it's been really inspirational to watch them because they've done a, a, just a fantastic job of dealing with it. And, um, you know, as I've ridden across the country, I've met some other families with Rett syndrome, and I've noticed that they all have that in common, that they're very uh, strong-willed and very driven and able to deal with that in a way that, I, you know, I don't think I personally would be able to. Let's get into talking about your bike trip. Well, I started in San Francisco, California, and the first day I rode across the Golden Gate Bridge. thought it was rather symbolic to start by riding across the Golden Gate Bridge. Can you think of any particular highlights of the trip so far, either with people or You've seen so much scenery. The coastal area of Northern California and Oregon is incredibly beautiful. It's rugged and rocky. The water is crashing against the jagged, rocky cliffs. For sure, for me, the highlight of the trip so far, just from a purely surprising standpoint, was North Cascades National Park, which is huge, uh, remote, very rugged, very rocky, dramatic mountains. And where there really are not a lot of people. I mean, there's, as opposed to some of the national parks I've been in on the trip that are crowded and touristy, uh, North Cascades National Park is, is really is really isolated and remote, which I enjoyed tremendously. Just prior to that, though, um, as I got ready to enter Seattle, I rode out onto the Olympic Peninsula, which is just west of Seattle, and um, there was, it's a it's a volcanic island basically, or a volcanic peninsula, and so there are giant. Um, volcanic mountains there that are snow-covered, much larger than you would have expected when, I, when you think of Seattle. At least I don't really think of giant mountains, and so it's interesting that just across Puget Sound from Seattle is Olympic Peninsula, which is very dramatic, very mountainous. Downtown Seattle was a lot of fun. I took a ferry from the Olympic Peninsula across Puget Sound to downtown Seattle, and I did all the tourist things there underground Seattle. The next impressive thing for me was uh, Sandpoint, Idaho, and uh, in Sandpoint I had two things I was in the midst of a heat wave. It was about 100 degrees, and uh, it was record-setting heat several days in a row. I was really hot. There's a giant lake there called Ponderay, 
which I had never seen before, and I was just simply riding along thinking, as soon as I can get to Sandpoint, I'm going to camp and I'm going to get in that lake because I've never been this hot in my life. And uh, a guy rode up next to me on a bike and um, asked where I was going, and that's exactly what I said. I said, I'm going to get in the lake. And uh, he said, no, I mean, you know, ultimately, where are you going? And I said, well, you know, on this trip, I'm going to Boston. And so I talked to him for just a couple of minutes, and without knowing his name or without him knowing mine, he said, well, why don't you come to my house? I've got air conditioning. You can stay with me for as long as you want. And, you know, prior to having gone on this trip, that would have been something that I would have thought was unusual, and it probably would have made me uncomfortable, and I might not have done it. But uh, by the time I got to... uh, to Sandpoint, and, and I met, uh, the guy's name turned out to be Jim, and I met him along the side of the road. I figured uh, if he was nice enough to ask and, and crazy enough to let some stranger into his house, then uh, I was willing to take him up on it. So uh, I followed him to his house uh, in Sandpoint, and I uh, got to meet his fiance and a huge uh, group of his family and friends. They had a barbecue that night when I got there, and um, it was just incredible that uh, somebody who didn't even know my name uh, was so incredibly generous. And then also at Sandpoint, it, it was just a beautiful part of the country. It's mountainous, but not, you know, giant mountains. It's tree-covered mountains. And uh, Ponderay Lake is phenomenally, phenomenally beautiful. And if you go online, I have some really great pictures of Ponderay uh, from the mountains because uh, Jim turned out to be a mountain biker, and he was kind enough to uh, point me in the direction of some mountain biking. So I actually spent two days at his house and uh, did some mountain biking. And uh, from there, I rode... Uh, on over into Montana and to Glacier National Park, which um, was initially the reason that I chose to ride across the northern route is because I wanted to see Glacier National Park. By the time I got there, I was so blown away by the scenery that I'd already seen that uh, I felt like I, you know, I I basically felt ignorant for not having known that it was going to be so impressive before I got there. I basically just thought I was going to be on a regular little bike ride Mm -hmm. and then I was going to get to Glacier and it was going to be magnificent. And Glacier is, of course, magnificent, and I was just stunned. Uh, I mean, you know, it is called Glacier National Park, but again, I guess I was naive in thinking that uh, in the middle of summer that there wouldn't be that much snow there, but there were probably uh, snow drifts that were 20 feet deep at the top of uh, the top of the pass. What was the altitude there? Uh, the altitude is only about 6,500 feet, which um, obviously, you know, Denver, Colorado is 5,200 feet, so Glacier's not incredibly high, but uh, the fact that it's so far north... Um, and the fact that those mountains are rising from sea level makes them big mountains uh, and uh, creates a weather pattern that, that is conducive to those glaciers. Although one of the sad things is, while you're there, you learn that probably in our lifetimes, those glaciers will be completely gone uh, because they're receding at a rate that is going to make them not last much farther than, say, 30 or 40 years into the future based on the warming of the global climate. So um, I felt pretty fortunate to get to see that. If it's something you're interested in, you should definitely go soon because each year there's a little bit less of it to see. From there, I I rode across northern Montana, several hundred miles of rolling grassy hills, which I enjoyed. But uh, kind of a neat thing, I think, about uh, Montana uh, is I got to go through a number of Indian reservations. Uh, And and Jari, when you and I talked, we talked a little bit about that. And so I got to uh, spend some time in a culture that's entirely different uh, than anything that uh, you would be used to if you live in sort of typical, you know, American culture. I think and, that's a uh, whole conversation in and of itself that we could have, Scott. I was more impressed with my time visiting the reservations than anything on my long road trip. I'd love to um, hear any thoughts that you've had from your experience there. You know, I would just say that it's really remarkable, first of all, how different the two cultures are, the, the Indian culture on the reservation versus 
you know, the culture and sort of the Americanized towns just off the reservation. And, you know, it truly, you do feel like you're in another country, and they are technically a sovereign nation. Um, there's a lot of, uh, oh, I don't know, conflict and confusion and, and mistakes and, and unfortunate incidents, I think, that, that mark the relationship between the American Indian tribes and the American government and the American people. And you feel a little bit of that when you're there. There's, you know, there's a little bit of tension on, on both sides. However, I found when I was on the reservations, the Indian people that I was meeting were every bit as friendly, if not more so, uh, than the people I met in um, the rest of my travels. I was at Theodore Roosevelt National Park. The landscape there is otherworldly. It's basically eroded dirt formations uh, along the Little Missouri River. And uh, without seeing pictures of it, it's really difficult to explain, but you feel a little bit like you might be on the moon from a geological standpoint. It's really amazing. And then from there, I, I made my way... Uh, down the edge of North Dakota and northern South Dakota, which was a lot like uh, Montana, a little bit larger, rolling, grassy hills. You, it's really uh, what you would envision as the prairie, and um, very, very sparsely populated. I mean, it wasn't uncommon to go 70 or 80 miles without a town. I love um, being out on those grasslands. I, I love that feeling of big sky and, and enormous space. Some people, I think, would find it very disorienting. It makes you feel small, for sure, but I, I actually enjoy that very much. You absolutely feel small, and I have a picture that I didn't post on the website because it doesn't come out too well. It's kind of hard to see what it is, but there was a point where I could see where I was going. I could see the, the grain elevator in the town that I was going, and it was 26 miles away, and I was trying to think, uh, you know, living in the Los Angeles area, you know, on the clearest day you can see to Catalina Island, which is just across the ocean, and that's about 26 miles. And in this case, I could see well beyond that town. There just wasn't anything out there to market. And, and so, you know, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, just some very big spaces. There was a lot of wildlife, antelope and buffalo and deer. You're kind of out there alone with your thoughts, which I totally enjoyed. And the few people that I did meet, at that point I was not on a typical cycling route, and so they don't see a lot of cross-country cyclists. And so they were incredibly interested in um, what I was doing. In fact, after I saw you in Bowman, I spent probably an hour at the grocery store, a guy who just couldn't stop asking me questions. I honestly thought that I might have to spend the night there um, just because I thought that I was going to run out of daylight before he and I finished our conversation. <laughs> and for every answer I had, he had another question. And it was really, I really liked that. Although I was meeting fewer people, more of the people who was meeting were asking questions just because I was something sort of foreign to them. So that was a lot of fun. And from there, I rode down to South Dakota, which is where I am now. I'm in Rapid City today. And uh, I just spent the weekend here. Uh, for the first time on my trip, uh, somebody from my regular life joined me. And uh, over the weekend, my girlfriend, Kelly, uh, came out, and we uh, were just bicycle tours. She rented a bike, and we rode about 150 miles over the weekend, uh, just uh, seeing the things that you would see if you come to South Dakota. So we saw Mount Rushmore and Crazy Horse and Custer State Park and Needles Highway and uh, Iron Mountain Road, and, and all of those things were incredibly beautiful, and it was really great to, to get to spend some time uh, doing these things that I've been so lucky to do all summer long with somebody that I, that I care about. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I'm talking today with cross-country cyclist Scott Parsons. I have a question for you. A lot of the listeners are creative people, and a trip like yours seems to me a very interesting balance of careful planning but also creative freedom. And I'm wondering, do you find that you're going on your intuition, your hunches, 
and, and serendipity and luck much on this journey. How has your own creativity and ingenuity and flexibility served you on this trip? There's a company called Adventure Cycling Association that, that makes maps for cross-country cyclists. And so uh, I, I thought, my plan was to loosely follow their routes. And as it turns out, I've probably followed, uh, in my 3,000 miles that I've ridden so far, I've probably been on their route for about uh, 1,200 maybe miles. And the rest of it has just been, you know, a roadmap or an atlas or, you know, asking people in, in local towns is the, the best way to go. And um, so the, the majority of my trip, I would say, has been sort of improvisation. So in that regard, I've had a lot of luck in terms of things going well. And I like the challenge of that, to have to figure things out on my own and to make decisions sort of on the fly versus knowing that I have these specific things that I have to do and places that I have to go. I like the sort of freedom of it a lot better, uh, just figuring it out as you go along. I'm curious now about your impressions of America and Americans. Being out there and meeting people and talking to people, what have been your, your impressions about this country well, my impressions of the country in general have totally changed during the trip. I knew that this would be something that was going to change my life, or at least I thought that, but I didn't really know what that meant until I got going. And, you know, coming from the corporate world, I was in a situation where um, your customers and your competitors, uh, you're in a battle basically for profit every day, and so that forces people to be predatory in a sense. And uh, although you have friendships and relationships, they're... Um, I guess the best way I would say it is they're strained or they're tenuous because of the circumstances that you find yourself in. And riding across the country, the most amazing thing, and if you read the uh, the blogs that I have online, I think that, that comes through pretty clearly, the most amazing thing is just how incredibly generous and friendly people are. And so although I'm doing something that a lot of people don't understand, and uh, as you saw me, Jari, I'm wearing, you know, basically pink spandex because that's the color of the charity, which, uh, you know, people find a little strange all by itself. But although they don't necessarily understand you or identify you, they certainly don't know you, um, people have gone out of their way on so many occasions to, to be helpful to me. I mean, people, total strangers. In fact, last night I stayed at the house of a total stranger here in Rapid City. People have bought me lunch and dinner. I, I've sat and talked for hours with people who were just simply curious and who were incredibly helpful with uh, information and details. And so the two things that have come through in the trip are, A, how incredibly diverse people in the United States are, how different somebody in California is from somebody in, say, Washington or from Montana to South Dakota and how different their cultures are. But the one thing that's been really uh, reassuring to me, I would say, is that uh, people have all just been incredibly friendly and, and incredibly helpful when they really didn't have any reason to be. There was nothing in it for them other than they're just good people and they wanted to do something nice. So it's really been uh, inspirational in that sense. Scott, have you had any scary or dangerous moments or, or ever just felt like quitting? Um, no, honestly, I, I'm, I'm really lucky that uh, so far in 3,000 miles, I've never felt like quitting. I mean, my friends have kind of made fun of me that basically every time I talk to them, I, I tell them, you know, yesterday was the best day I've ever had. And so um, they've laughed that you can't possibly have had whatever 40-something best days, but I really, I really feel like that's been the case, that every day has just been... Uh, such a uh, such a reward in and of itself uh, to be out and to be outside riding my bike and meeting people and, and to know that you're doing it for such a good cause. So I've never felt like quitting. Honestly, the only scary experience that I've had, I caused uh, basically on my own, and that is as I was descending off the backside of uh, going to the Sun Highway in Glacier National Park, uh, I hit a pothole with my trailer, which uh, flipped the trailer over and uh, basically ran 
I bike myself and my trailer off the side of the road and down about 10 feet into a creek bed. Um, you know, having spent a lifetime mountain biking, I was fine, and, and I wasn't really that scared by it, but that was probably the closest thing to a, a scary incident that I've had. There have been motorists that have been less than friendly in terms of the fact that you're sort of sometimes in their way, but that's really been the exception, and as a lifelong cyclist, that's something I'm used to. So I haven't had a bad day yet, and at this point, I'm more than halfway into my trip, so I'd say odds are I may not have any bad days, which is a really amazing thing if you think about it, because in my previous life when I had a, a job and was working in the corporate world. I mean, I had bad days. Not, I mean, not every day, but I mean, it was not uncommon to have a bad day. So to have been two months basically here and to have uh, nothing but great experiences has been just beyond my wildest expectations. That is so great. Scott, you mentioned that this trip has changed you, and I'm wondering if you could go into that a little more. How has it changed you, and what do you think lies ahead for you after the trip? I would say that it's given me a a greater faith in people, and not that I was uh, a negative person to begin with, but I would say that I was cautiously optimistic, or maybe in some situations I was even a little pessimistic in terms of my expectations of people, and, you know, I would say that that's been a a major change, is that uh, it's really changed uh, or increased my faith in people. Uh, I would say that it's made me want to return the favor when I'm done. So certainly going forward, although in the past I'm sure that I saw people who were traveling by bicycle across the country or who were broken down on the side of the road or who were somehow uh, in need of help. And I would say, unfortunately, that's not something that would have crossed my mind that I would invite them to stay at my house or take a shower or buy them lunch or, or anything like that. And so the fact that people have been so kind to me has really kind of changed the way I think about that. And I'm really looking forward to being able to return that favor uh, when I'm finished. And I would say that although I won't rule out going back to a a corporate position, um, I I really would like to to be more involved in the future with something that's having a a positive impact on people. And, you know, I don't know if that's a a nonprofit organization like Cure. I don't know if that's some sort of a a health-related profession like physical therapy or something like that, or I don't know if it's simply just being involved uh, on a volunteer basis with, uh, you know, different things within the community. But uh, at this point, uh, I would say that I'll be much more involved in something like that than I've ever thought or would have ever done in the past. And then finally, I've always loved to be outdoors, and um, I've always loved to ride my bike. And the one thing that I know uh, for certain is that uh, when I'm finished, the next thing that I do, whether uh, regardless of what profession it is, I'll be much more oriented towards uh trying to be outdoors and and, and trying to continue to pursue my dreams and to help other people realize just how easy it is um, to make the choices to pursue their own. So I don't really know what that's about. I don't know what that's going to become. And uh, I guess for a lot of people, uh, in fact, I know for a lot of people, that's a little discomforting. Uh, My friends and some of my family are surprised that uh, I don't know what's next. And I think just as Americans, we always feel the need to have the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And and right now I don't have that, but I feel confident based on what I've learned about people on this trip and what I've learned about myself. You know, I'll find the next thing, and I'm sure that it will be uh, just as great as this has been. I I like the adventure of that. And, you know, as that date grows near, as I ride across the country, uh, hopefully I'll uh, have some more clear ideas on the subject. I want to just wind up by coming back around to Michaela Cure. And um, I noticed when we met that you were wearing that spandex outfit with a number of sponsors' names printed on your jersey. 
And I wanted to ask how much money you've raised so far and what is your fiscal goal for the trip? I personally have raised about $15,000 so far. My personal goal starting uh, the trip was $50,000. I'm pretty sure I'm going to make it. I think that I'm going to have to do some public speaking, Rotary Clubs and Kiwana Clubs and that sort of thing when I'm finished to get to my $50,000 goal. But Robert and Annie's goal for the charity is $500,000, and they are doing things, you know, outside of my trip. So, you know, at this point I'm halfway, so I'm a little bit behind where I thought I would be, but I've picked up steam as I've gone. I think that in a lot of cases, the first couple times you tell somebody about it, they have sort of the same reaction I did, which is, oh, that's sad, or oh, that's interesting. And so it's really taken me following up with people to drive the donations. And the other thing, I think people just jump to the conclusion that we are somehow profiting from this, that uh, Robert and Annie and Michaela and uh, our friends who run the website and our friends who did all the uh, the design and the logos and all those things, that we're somehow making you know a living from that. And the fact is that we aren't. And now that we've been better at getting that message out, the fact that everything that goes into Michaela here is donated from one of us, uh, our time, all of the materials, all of it, I think that people are more willing to give. The website is MikhailaCure.org, and that's M-I-K-Y-L-A hyphen Cure, C-U-R-E, dot org. And uh, on the website, you will find uh, a lot of information about Rett Syndrome and links to uh, some very uh, high-powered Rett Syndrome research sites and and places where um, the most up-to-date Rett Syndrome information is. You'll find uh, quite a bit of information about Michaela and Robert and Annie and their family and and the things that they've gone through and the things that they're doing. Uh, There's a a little bio about me, which if you listen to this interview, uh, will be mostly redundant. And then there are ride updates for me. Uh, Probably every three to four days, I posted an update on the ride as well as pictures. Is there an email address or something on the site? There's two ways you can reach me. Uh, if you go out to the right update portion, you can post comments on the website, and, and I see them. I get copied on them. And if you post a comment on the website like that, I might not necessarily respond to you, but I'll definitely read it. Or you can email me, and my email address is scott, S-C-O-T-T, at Michaela, M-I-K-Y-L-A, hyphen, cure, dot org. So just like the website itself, except uh, an email address, scott at MichaelaCure.org. And uh, I'd be happy to answer questions, and uh, if there's something that we have in common or something that you're interested in, I'd love to hear from any of your listeners. Well, Scott, I'm so impressed with what you're doing, and what I'd love to do is to check back with you towards the end of your trip or after it's over and just get an update and highlights of the second half of your trip. That would be outstanding. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for your time. I truly appreciate it. My pleasure.